If you are listening to this broadcast, then you are alive. This is the West Allen Show. The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies. Ordinary men and women are too small-minded to govern their own affairs. That order and progress can only come when individuals surrender their rights to an all-powerful sovereign. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic process. If I were the devil, well, if I were the prince of darkness, I'd want to engulf the whole world in darkness. And I would have a third of its real estate and four-fifths of its population. But I wouldn't be happy until I had seized the ripest apple on the tree. V. So I'd set about, however necessary, to take over the United States. I'd subvert the churches first, and begin with a campaign of whispers. With the wisdom of a serpent, I'd whisper to you as I whisper to Eve, do as you please. To the young, I'd whisper that the Bible is a myth. I would convince them that man created God instead of the other way around. I'd confide that what is bad is good and what is good is square. And the old I would teach to pray after me, our Father which art in Washington. And then I'd get organized. I'd educate authors in how to make a uh, lurid literature exciting so that everything else would appear dull and uninteresting. I'd threaten TV with dirtier movies and vice versa. I'd peddle narcotics to whom I could. I'd sell alcohol to ladies and gentlemen of distinction. I'd tranquilize the rest with pills. If I were the devil, I'd soon have families at war with themselves, churches at war with themselves, and nations at war with themselves, until each in its turn was consumed. And with promises of higher ratings, I'd have memorizing media fanning the flames. If I were the devil, I'd encourage schools to refine young intellects, but to neglect to discipline emotions. Just let those run wild until before you knew it, you'd have to have drug-smelling dogs and metal detectors at every schoolhouse door. Within a decade, I'd have prisons overflowing. I'd have judges promoting pornography. Soon, I could evict God from the schoolhouse and then from the courthouse and then from the houses of Congress. And in his own churches, I would substitute psychology for religion and defy science. I would lure priests and pastors into misusing boys and girls and church money. If I were the devil, I'd make the symbol of Easter an egg and the symbol of Christmas a bottle. If I were the devil, I'd take from those who have and I would give to those who wanted until I had killed the incentive of the ambitious. And what will you bet I could get whole states to promote gambling as the way to get rich? 
Yeah. I would caution against extremes and hard work and in patriotism and in moral conduct. I would convince the young that your marriage is old-fashioned, that swinging is more fun, that what you see on TV is the way to be. And thus I could undress you in public and I could lure you into bed with diseases for which there is no cure. In other words, if I were the devil, I'd just keep doing what he's doing. Well, folks, there it is. The, trying to piece together the things that we can look around us that are happening. A lot of the new generation, the newer generation, doesn't uh, didn't have a chance to uh, to see what it was like before before the school was uh, integrated with these with the globalists. Uh, which is an evil thing that, that they've been doing. Uh, we can look at Hollywood. We can look at the media. We can look all around us in the music uh, where evil is taking place. And uh, it's in our everyday lives here on Earth where they're going to go to a one-world government and a one-world religion with a one world financial system that's what will be when you go cashless and it all boils down to why are we here and uh, I know why I'm here I'm here to educate people with what I have to offer to show them these stories of real people and their experiences with near death what they actually seen now not all of these people can be crazy and have lost their minds or or in a mental distress or what have you and you'll see a lot of them doctors will say well you're you've been in mental distress no everything we have here on this on this show is all for education and education purposes only and uh, I have another little story here that was really interesting out of the tens of thousands of NDEs over the last 25 years that I've been indulging myself into and I I come across a Betty Mouse and she has a book out. It's called My Glimpse of Eternity. And it's a, it's a young lady uh, when she was younger that had had an appendix burst on her on a vacation. And uh, then there was three doctors that had misdiagnosed what the problem was. So she was, by the time they figured out what it was, it was 11 days 11 days with a bursted appendix and gangrene the size of a man's head. She was in bad shape. And uh, she tells all about her journey and her immaculate recovery. And so here is Betty Mouse, and I suggest you get her book called My Glimpse 
of eternity. And here it goes. In my father's church, we had a man that I never liked. He used to come in and bring his untuned guitar and help me with the music. I was organist, and I never liked art. And he came to visit me. This particular day, I remember uh, the nurse, Mary Barton, she said, Doctor, I'm going to put a no visitor sign on the door. We've had too much company, and uh, there'll be no visitors, just relatives. And uh, this was the day they removed all of the equipment. My lungs had filled with water. The doctor said it would just be hours. There's not anything else we can do. It had been 44 days, twice I was gone, they brought me back, but now they could not give me any more intravenous feedings, no more blood transfusions. And I, at this point, began to struggle for breath, and I prayed, oh Lord, please send somebody to help me. I heard a man's footsteps, and I thought, oh good, that'll be a doctor. Or even my husband, as pitiful as he is, <laughs> with his bedside manners, he would go get someone. Or maybe it Maybe it's just the doctor himself. Or maybe my good dad, he prayed. My father would sit in that room. Eight days he didn't go home. He would change clothes in the restroom. And I thought if he would come and just pray for me. I knew it was the end. And uh, all of a sudden I heard the pages of the Bible being turned and this voice of the man that I had never liked. I thought to myself, oh, now, if I can just get the nurse's call button and get him out of here. I couldn't stand art when I was well, let alone when I was sick. <laughs> I just didn't want him in the room. But I could hear and I could understand everything, but I didn't have control. All of a sudden, I relaxed. I quit worrying about who he was and listened to what he said. Art read Psalm 107. Verse 20, he sent his word and healed them. Suddenly, like a little fountain inside of me, faith sprung up that came through the word of God when they said I couldn't live. I really believe that we have let thousands of patients go out into eternity without Jesus because someone did not take their hand and read the word of God and pray for them. The scripture says, with a man's heart, he believes unto salvation. And I believe that any of you, whether you are medical or just a friend, could go in the room of a comatose patient, a dying person. You could pray the prayer of faith and many times medical skills. You have double healing hands if you know Jesus. You can use your medical uh, skills and pray. And the Creator, God, Jesus, the great physician, will come alongside to help you. And many times I believe patients could have a medical miracle. And if not, they could die and you may change the course of destination for eternity and build a bridge from this life to the next. I know that now because that prayer and that scripture that Art read for me actually brought the faith that I was going to be healed. But right after he left the room, I gasped my last breath. And what a surprise it was. I felt like I'd gotten on a roller coaster at Disneyland. And when you peak that high point in the ride, it was a thrill of the ride. There was no fear in death. 
I had received Jesus when I was 13. Now, I never liked people, and I suppose if I would have stayed during that death experience, I would have had no reward because I had never invested in people. But suddenly, I realized that I was launched into another country, another planet. It was as real as England or America. And I began to walk through a meadow of waving green grass among flowers in colors like I have never seen here. It was a very natural place, and I saw people who had died that I knew, my baby brother, a man that had uh, fallen from a train in my town, had both legs amputated. He was running and playing in a meadow down uh, below the gates with children and animals, and he had both of his legs. There's nothing incomplete there. And then all of a sudden, I began to skip through this meadow and I was standing tall and erect and no pain. And as I walked along, I started up a hill. And to the left of me, I realized there was an angel walking. Now, I don't know why, but as a kid, I thought angels were effeminate sissies, you know, with dainty features and little white hands. This dude must have been seven feet tall that walked with me. And I realized he'd been with me all of my life since the age 13 when I had received Jesus as my Savior, but I had never realized he had been with me, protecting me, guarding me, keeping me, because I'd never been sick, always had a lot of self-confidence, and uh, now when I needed him, he was walking a little to the left. Now, sometimes we communicated, but mostly we talked with our thing. And as we walked up this hill, I remember how vivid the music was, and it was coming over a wall. I listened, and the music was marvelous. And I began to join, and I sang. I was born with a girl's body, but with a deep boy's voice. I've always yearned to sing in high, sweet tones, like we heard here tonight. I sang like that. I began to express myself like I had always felt it. And I realized at that point that there you will be what you've always wanted to be here, but were not quite able to make it. Or you will do the same thing there that you did here, only in a perfect environment. Now, nurses, you're going to have to get a new profession because there is no sickness, no dying, no ill people there. But singers were really busy, and the builders were busy. They were building, getting ready for a large number of people. They were expecting to move there at one time. And I began to sing, and then I stopped. I heard Jack Holcomb. Uh, Jack Holcomb was a Swedish tenor, and I remember that year we had General Council of the Assemblies of God in Dallas, Texas, and uh, Jack Holcomb was a Swedish tenor that sang at that council. I got his records, and I enjoyed him so much. And as I stood there in that new country, I heard him sing two songs. He sang, I have been born again, and the old account was settled long ago. I thought, isn't this strange? I don't understand how I could hear him singing up here in this new place. After this experience, I called Waco, Texas, 
and was going to ask his permission to use that part of my story in my first book. And I got his widow, and she told me he had died. I heard him singing up there. That was an amazing experience. Then I knew I must go inside the gate, and the angel stepped forward, and as he did, he touched the gate, and it opened to me. And I stepped inside, and the most brilliant yellow light shined through me, and all of my pain was gone. And I looked down, and new pink skin was forming over all three incisions. That's pretty quick for healing. And then I looked all around, and the light was so bright, I kept trying to see Jesus. He was at the right of the Father in a majestic golden throne room. And the light was too bright, but it reflected on a golden boulevard down the center of the city, and it shined through me and warmed my cold body. I will always remember the light. St. John calls Jesus the light and the life interchangeable. I realized that the light in that throne room was the source of all energy and power and light and life and electricity and warmth that causes the earth to function. Then I began to skip on in, and I hurried. And as I did, I walked through what looked like uh, northern lights or airport beacons. These were prayers ascending from the earth. Prayers are not just words uttered in frustration. These prayers were ascending from the earth like uh, laser beams, and they were going directly to the light in the throne room. I saw the other end of prayer. On one shaft of light, I saw my father's voice registered. He was the first one that stepped up to the side of my bed. My husband, mother, and my daughter were leaning against the wall. I saw them, and I looked down, and I saw that scene in the room. My father was weeping. He said all he could think of when he talked with the nurse's aide that was with me saw my body covered with a sheet, and they had pulled the bed over by the door. He was so heartbroken, he merely said, Jesus, to offer comfort to himself. But in that one word moan was a wish that I had not died. Folks, if you're here tonight in a desperate situation, his name, there is no other name under heaven given whereby we might be saved, saved from our circumstance, saved from our sins. My father breathed his name, and his name will always be enough. In an emergency, when there's not time to pray an intelligent prayer, my dad just breathed his name. I never wanted to leave that glorious place, but his one-word prayer, and he wished I had not died. It changed my mind, and I travel faster than a jet plane, back down toward the roof of the hospital. I saw the morning sun coming up. It was coming up over the horizon. It was actually 5.28 a.m., and I saw it from a high vantage point as the sun came up over the horizon. And then I began to realize how fast I was traveling. I saw that the morning sun was shining on all the church steeples in our um, hometown. My religious prejudice was gone. I realized my racial prejudice was gone. In that place, I found out they didn't even ask for a label. 
No passport. They didn't ask what church I went to. The only passport visa to get in was Jesus, the Son of the living God. And I realized God loved all of the churches in our town where they exalted his Son, Jesus. And I approached the hospital, and I looked down through the roof, through the fifth floor, through the fourth floor, and I looked into room 336. I've had the privilege of going back there, seeing the microfilm of all of my medical records, and uh, I went back to room 336. I'll never forget that morning as I saw the sun come up, and I began to squint, for I saw as I traveled toward the hospital, the morning sun had a special ray that was coming through the window, and there were ivory letters pulsating about two inches high, like a stock market ticker tape, and they were going into my body through the sheet. And as I got close, I felt like I got in an elevator. And when you hit the bottom floor, that sensation, I felt that little jerk and I slid into my body, and as I did, I remembered what Art read to me. He sent his word and healed them. And I saw the ivory letters and I read the words of Jesus. They were St. John 11:25. I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth on me, though he were dead, Yet shall he live. And when I saw the word of God, I'd had a lot of hallucinating. One of the most horrible things was the drugs, worse than the pain. And I would have little pink men that would throw me from the top of one building to another all during this experience. And I wondered, is this hallucination too? So I reached up to touch those words of Jesus. This was no hallucination. When I reached up, I pushed the sheet off my face. I touched the word of God, and life went into my fingers and into my arms and into my body, and I sat up. I want you to know you're looking at one of the happiest people you're ever going to meet for a second chance to live again, second chance to love people again. And when I sat up, I scared a whole room full of people. <laughs> the little nurse's aide ran out the door. She'd been in mercy for many days when I was in a coma and uh, for 28 minutes after I had died. And when I sat up and the sheet fluttered down, I have to draw you a picture, though, why she was frightened. I sat up, and I am 5 foot 12. I weighed 68 pounds. I had green complexion, yellow eyes, and uh, my hair had not been shampooed for nine weeks. I had lost several weeks off the calendar. When I sat up, there wasn't much there, and it was a frightening experience. I looked in the mirror, and... For the first time in my life, I didn't care how I looked. It was so wonderful to have a second chance to live again. And I was so homesick, so hungry, so thirsty. And I looked around, and I saw my husband. Oh, he looked so wonderful. It was so good to see him. Mother and dad were there, and they daughter, Brenda, all of them got up on the bed. They were squeezing my feet and hugging my legs. I know what it will be like now on the great resurrection morning when we see our loved ones again, to see them again in that room. And do you know little things mean a lot? I have to tell you the first thoughts that came into mind. I want to go home and bake bread and mow the grass and love my husband 
and mop the kitchen and do dishes. Little things that had never meant anything, just little things. And all of a sudden, I looked out the window and the grass, oh, how wonderful. Things I had not paid attention to before. The grass was so beautiful. The grass in that new place was like twisted strands of green velvet. And life went up into my legs as I walked through it. And this morning, the ordinary grass was so lovely. And the morning sun, every morning now, is like Easter at my house. I can hardly wait to see what God has planned for my day. And I looked out, and there was a black boy carrying a case of 7-Up on his shoulders across the hospital lawn into the vending machine in the basement. And do you know, I would have jumped out that window and hugged him if I could have. I love that black boy so much. And then I turned to my family, and we began to to talk, and I thought, oh, I know, I know who I have to call, my grandmother, Mom Perky. When I went into the hospital, she was very seriously ill, and I wanted to tell her, there's no fear in death. I picked up the phone, and I dialed 733-2286. Mom Perky, there's no fear in death. It's just changing locations from here to there. It's very sudden. I told her everyone that she knew, that I knew, that had died, and uh, I just began to talk about the light and the music, and I just just rambled on telling my grandmother so that she would not be afraid to die. She had been very sick. She didn't even answer me, and I thought, this is so strange. I thought she'd be so happy to know about this. I didn't know Mother had called her and told her I'd died. (laughs) When I called her and talked to her, she thought, well, if Betty died, and if I'm talking to her on the telephone, I died too then. <laughs> My father got on the phone and he says, Mother, we don't know, you know what has all happened, but Betty's sitting up in bed talking about a light, and we'll call you back in a little bit. Well, the next thing that happened, they call my doctor. Poor man, he'd gone home to get some sleep, and they brought him back, and he was very embarrassed. I mean, how do you explain to your colleagues that a patient that you signed a death certificate for sits up in bed? You've made a mistake, a dreadful mistake. Or it looks like you were in a hurry to go home and get some rest and you were not sure. He sat down and he was overwhelmed with just embarrassment. All of a sudden I began to talk about everything that I had seen and he took my hand and asked my family to leave. I said, Doctor, I'm so thirsty and so hungry and so homesick. And I said, oh, please, uh, tell one of the nurses to tell my mother to be sure that Brenda gets to go to see the 4th of July fireworks. He said, Betty, it's August the 1st. I'd missed a lot of time. And Brenda got to see the fireworks. Then I asked if I could go home. I said, I feel so wonderful. He said, Betty, I want to talk very seriously with you. You were without oxygen for a long period of time. You had a high fever. We used powerful drugs for pain because we knew you could not live. And when you came in, you were in very serious condition. You have a bowel block. Uh, Your organs had started to disintegrate. We need to talk about mental therapy, physical therapy. You were blind when you came to us. You may always be blind through this condition, toxic poisoning and all. I said, oh, no, doctor, when I saw the light, now I can see. 
He said, and I wouldn't talk about what I saw. He said, you've been through a great shock. You will never understand what all you've been through. He said, and people will know about the brain damage. He said, we will help you for a new way of life. I knew he did not believe nor understand. And I said, well, could I? I'm so hungry. Yes, he said, you've had a high fever and a stomach pump for over a month. And we are going to, first of all, do a colostomy to make a way of elimination first. Then we'll talk about fluids later on, a diet, a soft diet. And I almost wished I had stayed, you know, to think about this. Here I was again, worrying about this inconvenience. He got up to leave, and he said, I'm going down to scrub. I'll see you in surgery in 20 minutes. I begged, and he said, I will send you a little bit of crushed ice, a sip of 7-Up. And in just a minute's time, it was way too quick, uh, an aide came in, propped me up in bed, and on this tray, there were two broiled pork chops, <laughs> applesauce, cottage cheese, a square of lemon cake, and a pot of tea. Now, I'm not a dietitian, but I don't think this is what you feed someone that has not eaten for over a month. But I polished it off in almost nothing flat. Do you know, we forget to be grateful for little things like the taste of food, the ability to digest, to eat. A lot of people that don't enjoy it. It was so wonderful, something I'd taken for granted. And all of a sudden, in came a registered nurse unrolling some tubing. She said, Betty, we've made a dreadful mistake. I have to run this tube up your nose, down your throat. I must pump your stomach so you don't vomit and hemorrhage. I said, oh, nurse, please don't. It tasted, I won't vomit, I promise. I promise you, I won't vomit. I argued with her, and before she put the tube in my nose, a lady came through the door and took her by the elbow, and I listened to learn. This woman wanted to complain. She was ready to go home. Her husband was on his way to pick her up in the car, and uh, she had been dismissed. And all they gave her for her last meal was four ounces of 7-Up and questions. <laughs> then the doctor came back. He said, you could sue the hospital. We've made a dreadful mistake. I said, doctor, I don't think you have made a mistake. God has a sense of humor. See, you didn't believe me when I told you where I went. He shook his head. He knew I was really in bad mental condition. <laughs> so he said, uh, now, if one bit of food has passed the duodenal, is that the way you pronounce duodenal muscle? We're in trouble. And so he told the aide, don't even, don't even prep her like you usually do. Just speed things up. I'll see you in surgery. Well, when the nurse's aide got me on the car, I begged. I said, I have a natural impulse. I'm telling you. So she said, let's try. She took me in that little room, and I want you to know the funniest, grossest thing you're ever going to see is two nurses in white uniform applauding a BM. <laughs> My plumbing worked in every way it did in this morning, Robert. It is amazing. Do you know this is another thing you take for granted? Little things that mean so very much. I was so happy for just simple things that I had taken for granted for so long. My doctor came in. He, he was so amazed. 
He said, this is not possible. This can't happen, he kept saying. And then he said, as he pulled the sheet back and saw some new pink skin starting to knit over the incisions, he said, you know, I don't know where you went, but wherever you went, you have come back well. And he was amazed. I didn't stay for seven or eight weeks of mental and physical therapy. When I left, he said, now I want to warn you, you'll have a lot of depression. You'll have a drug withdrawal. You'll probably have a drug habit for a while that you need to cope with. We need to talk about birth control. I doubt very much if you would ever conceive, but if you would get pregnant by some remote chance, you probably would uh, produce a deformed child. We need to talk about birth control. He had a lot of things to say. Well, I went home and in two days I began to eat. In three months I had gained a lot of weight back. In two years I had a daughter born perfect in every way and uh, I've just had wonderful health ever since. The only lingering problem I have is the brain damage. <laughs> to tell you I fooled a lot of people I'm working on book number seven the hospital Christian fellowship have been kind enough to bring books here and the proceeds will go for this wonderful organization so on your way out if you would like a copy of my glimpse of eternity prayers that are answered supernatural living um, I think we've got back their angels watching over me and the brand new one, Women in Tune. And then my husband has written a little book, If You're Over the Hill, You Ought to Be Going Faster. This is a book about weight control and depression and some of the natural things. But you know, I didn't come here tonight just to tell a wonderful story to friends where I used to live. But when Jesus was on earth, he gravitated toward need. I have to clarify something, though. I did not sue the doctor. Two attorneys came with malpractice suits, and uh, they did make some dreadful mistakes. And um, I could have sued the hospital, but I was too glad for a second chance to live again to hurt anybody. And I must tell you that my first book, My Glimpse of Eternity, has sold over a million copies. It's in 18 languages. My first royalty check was $11 more than my hospital bill. So God has been good to me. And uh, when Jesus was on earth, he gravitated toward need. And I know that behind every heart that beats, there is a secret sorrow. And tonight, I want to pray for your need in closing. Father, I thank you that you allowed me to see the other end of prayer. And now, Lord, when I pray, I know that my words are not just floating in space, but they are direct rays of energy that ascend directly to the throne room of God. And Lord, I'm praying now for the needs of this audience. If there is anyone here tonight that does not have a passport visa to eternity, I pray that the Holy Spirit now would reveal himself in great love to that heart. 
Lord, as that person begins to breathe your name in faith, I pray that you would receive that confession and that you would wash away the guilt of the past and forgive sins in the heart of anyone here tonight. Lord, many times in an audience there are people who were in such a hurry when they were baptized or confirmed, they didn't receive all God intended them to have at that time. And I pray as we have been in your presence, we have been singing and we have been exalting Jesus, the Son of God, that everyone here would remember Calvary and Jesus' death, how his blood was shed to eradicate the sins of our past. And I thank you, Lord, that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And you are still the great physician. Lord, your word says that when you went away, greater things than I do you shall do because I go to the Father. Lord, I believe that in essence this was a prophetic statement because Jesus himself was the great physician and he knew that time would bring about modern medicine and technology that would indeed heal and mend broken bodies. And Lord, also, he is our great physician and he is the same and when faith reaches out after man and woman has done all that he or she can do, then Jesus makes up the difference many times in his overruling practical providence. He performs a miracle that no one can explain. Yes, there are miracles that no one can explain. You heard it from her, Betty Mouse. And, you know, we have another good piece and uh, coming up here. And I, I do apologize for how bad the audio was there. Uh, a lot of this, uh, these interviews that we get are very old. And, uh, and I try to choose them carefully with uh, uh, the message that I like to bring. Now, this next clip that we got is from a... Fox News 8 out of Cleveland years ago and a man merely refers himself as to be Howard who had a gastral uh, mishap that put him in very bad condition and he now lives in northern Kentucky and this is his experience here it is some people seek salvation not Howard Storm. He claims faith found him. They were with their teeth tearing off hunks of me. They did worse things than that. A terrifying descent into death and darkness that began in the City of Lights. I took a group of students and my wife to Europe for an art tour. Spring 1985, Howard was a 38-year-old college art professor, department head, and devout atheist. I'm ashamed of this, but I really thought that um, religious people were um, simple-minded or um, just completely living in a fantasy world. 
He didn't care about life's purpose, only pleasure. Then you die and it's over. Paris was to be the piece de resistance until a nagging stomach ache suddenly intensified. Pain was the most acute pain I'd ever experienced in my life. A gastrointestinal perforation with corrosive digestive acids spilling into the abdominal cavity. Oh, I needed surgery within a few hours or I'd be dead. Howard's condition was critical, but the hospital staff couldn't locate a doctor to prescribe pain medication, let alone operate. Because it was a Saturday and nobody was aware of it, there was no surgeon at the surgical hospital. Ten hours later, he was ready to die. So we said our goodbyes and um, I closed my eye and went unconscious. Then something unexpected happened. He woke up, feeling more alive than ever, looking at his dead body and his wife crying. So these people were outside the room calling me by name. Come with us, Howard. They um, said, hurry up, Howard. come with us, let's go, we know all about you. So I thought Howard. that they were going to take me to my surgery. But he says there was no surgery. Instead, he was led into a never-ending, dark, damp space. I was terrified, so I said, I'm not going any further with you, and then they began to push and shove. He says dozens, maybe hundreds, attacked, biting, ripping, tearing him apart, just for fun. Then they did things to humiliate me and diminish me, which is part of it that I don't talk about because it's too gross. Was this hell? I don't think I was in hell. I think I was being processed, sort of like um, this was my indoctrination to become like them. And that's when he heard it. He says an inner voice telling him to pray. Memory came to me, um, very, very vivid, of myself sitting in a Sunday school classroom singing Jesus Loves Me. He says the creatures became agitated and began to back off. Out of desperation, I called out into the darkness, Jesus, please save me. And when I did that, a tiny light appeared in the darkness and got very, very bright. Within the light, Howard claims Jesus appeared and healed his wounds. And I was filled with his love for me, which is um, wonderfully impossible to describe. Soon, he says, guardian angels also arrived to watch his life in review. He says earthly achievements meant nothing here, while every human interaction was consequential. Episode by episode, where I had either loved or failed to love. However, he felt them all rejoice the night he had comforted his sister after a fight with their dad. And I put my arm around her and, and held her really tight while she cried. And I um, held her all night long until um, she fell asleep. I, my angels and Jesus really approved of that that simple act of kindness. Determined to change, he asked, what is the best religion? He said, the best religion is the one that brings you closest to God. And the most important message? He said, love the person that you're with. And I said, okay, I'll do that. Now what do you want me to do? And he said, no, that's it. Love the person that you're with. Family, friends, strangers, and enemies alike without judgment. And that's exactly what Howard says he did upon his return even when his wife divorced him and colleagues didn't believe his story. People um, really hated me because of my new values. My, all my old friends dropped me. Um, some members of my family um, couldn't stand um, my new values and my new faith. Undeterred, Howard quit his job, worked at a soup kitchen, then graduated from the seminary. 
a religious conversion that also greatly influenced his artwork. This is the first painting I did after my experience. Illustrations of the hellish and heavenly journey are hung throughout his northern Kentucky home, which he shares with his new wife, Marcia, a woman who's never doubted him. Why would he give up a full tenured professorship and his retirement? Logically, it, it doesn't make sense. And yet, it's so powerful that that's what he was called to do and that's what he did. Howard's also written a book titled My Descent into Death and 30 years later continues to tell his story to anyone who will listen. I can't save anyone that's between them and God, but hopefully um, through love and kindness you can make an impression on people which will give them um, you know, an opportunity to rethink what their beliefs are about. And that was Howard and his story. And we do have another one here right away. I'm going to play it. It's from Mary Neal. And she had had a kayak accident and drowned. And she is a surgeon. And here is her story. I used to be a very typical American Christian. I went to Sunday school when I was a kid. I was confirmed in the church when I was in middle school, and then <laughs> I went to college and medical school and training, and I bought into the idea that you had to choose between science and spirituality. Now, I was a good person. I mean, I certainly bought into the concept of being a good person and honest and ethical and a woman of integrity and all those sorts of things. But the fact is, I was really busy. I became a wife, a full-time surgeon. I was the director of spine surgery at a big university. And pretty soon, I had four little kids to take care of. <laughs> I mean, Jesus, to me, was one more thing on my to-do list that I knew I was never going to get to. But that all changed one day in 1999 when I died. And yes, I literally mean died. I spent 30 minutes under 8 to 10 feet of water without oxygen at the base of this waterfall. And <clears throat> while I was underwater and dying, <laughs> I asked that God's will be done. And the minute I asked that, I was immediately overcome with a very, very physical sensation of being held and comforted and reassured by Christ. And he took me through a life review was, that was like nothing I could have imagined. I was reinserted into every one of the most painful memories of my life. But this time was different. I had a complete understanding of the life story of the other people involved. And I felt nothing but compassion. Even for the people who had hurt me deeply. And I discovered that where God's love is present, there is no room for destructive emotion. I discovered grace. And then I was also shown the beauty that came out of each and every one of those painful experiences when seen from a distant perspective. Eventually, my body 
came over the front deck of my boat. And when that happened, my spirit rose up and out of the river and I was immediately greeted by a group of people or spirits, beings, who were so overjoyed to welcome me home. I know that they had loved me and known me as long as I have existed. And even as I was with them and rejoicing, I could look back at the river and I could see my friends pull my bloated purple body to shore and watch them start CPR. And I had a wonderful life. But even as I watched that, I knew that I was home and I had no intention of returning. And these people or spirits started taking me down this beautiful pathway that exploded with colors and flowers and the aromas of flowers, which is what speaks beauty to my soul. And I absolutely believe that God presents to each one of us the experience at the time of our death that does speak beauty to us, that lets us know that we are known and loved. And we finally got to the end of this pathway and I was there for what felt like many, many hours. And during my time there, I had a complete understanding, a complete understanding of the divine order of the universe, how it could possibly be true that there is a God that is real and present today, knows each and every one of the billions of us on this planet individually, <laughs> loves each and every one of us as though we're the only ones, and has a plan for each and every one of us and for the world that's one of hope. And eventually I was told that it wasn't my time, that I had more work to do on earth and that I would have to go back to my body. So I did what any reasonable person would do and I said, I'm good, I can stay. <laughs> but here I am, I got kicked out. The, uh, <laughs> but they took that opportunity to then give me this laundry list of work yet to be done. Everything on the list would be challenging, but certainly one of the most challenging uh, things on that list had to do with the coming and unexpected death of my oldest son. He was hit and killed by a car 10 years later. But at that time, he was only nine. And when I asked the obvious question of why, why my, why my boy, I was immediately returned to my life review where I had been shown the truth in God's promise that beauty comes of all things, eventually. <laughs> And I was reminded that it is always a matter of trust, trusting God's promises to us. And with that then, I was reunited with my body. And I continued to have supernatural experiences over the next couple of weeks. But then finally the window, my personal window into heaven, closed. And I was left with the consequences of my injury and I underwent many, many surgeries and many more months of rehab. And I spent those many months of rehab trying to figure out what had happened to me. I researched extensively every possible explanation or excuse that anyone had ever mentioned. I researched, of course, dreams and hallucinations and DMT or other neurotransmitter trips, uh, you know, could it have been just the physiologic process of a dying brain? 
And at the end of many, many months of research, I had to conclude that mine had been a true and spiritual experience. And I discovered also <laughs> that science and spirituality actually coexist very easily because they answer different questions. And I also discovered that I wasn't alone in this experience. Almost 20 million people in this country alone have had this sort of profoundly transformative experience. And I've spent many years, of course, thinking about my experiences, and I, I recognize that my most important transformation was moving from hope or a faith in God's promises to an absolute trust. And I do not mean to discount the faith of the Bible, but faith in our culture is so often based on reading or other people's experiences, and it can certainly be strong, but it can just as easily be shaken or lost when challenged. But trust is solid. Trust is an active choice based on the presence of God and the experience of God's trustworthiness in one's own life. And I will tell you that trust for me is sort of uh, faith in action. And I will tell you what it looks like in my life. First of all, because of trust, I'm free. <laughs> I am free from all bondage to my past. I don't feel guilt. I don't feel remorse, regret for anything I've done or not done. Because I trust that God knows me completely and knows my story, knows my failings. And in that knowledge, through grace, feels nothing but compassion for me. And I also know that I would feel nothing but compassion for people in my past because if I knew their true story, I too would feel nothing but compassion for them. And so I am free from bitterness, hate, anger, even minor irritation that people have caused me. And I don't have worry or anxiety about my future because I trust that God has a plan for my life that is one of hope. And I'm certainly not afraid of death. <laughs> I trust, and actually I will claim to know, that there really is life after death, heaven, whatever you want to call it. And I actually believe that it is the very reality of that heaven that brings context and meaning and purpose to my own life. And what I mean by that is best shown in this next slide. Many of you will see a white cup and some of you will see blue faces. But if you focus entirely on the cup, you'll miss the context and the meaning provided by the faces. And if you focus entirely on the blue faces, you'll miss the beauty and the purpose of the cup. Now, if you imagine for a minute that that white cup represents our life here on earth, and the blue faces represent heaven, God's people, God's intention, God's love. If you take away that background of heaven, then this white cup of life becomes nothing but potential. 
So I'm free from my past. I don't worry about the future. And heaven brings a context and meaning to my life. So what that means is that I am absolutely free to be fully present in every moment of this day. And <clears throat> because I trust all of God's promises, that means that I also trust what the Bible says about God's presence in my life. I trust that God is always present, that there's nothing that can separate me from his love, that beauty will come of all things in its time, and that all things work together for good. So what that does is it allows me to rise above my momentary circumstances and experience joy. It allows me to be free to experience the joy-filled life that I believe God intends for each one of us. And wonderfully, you don't have to die <laughs> to make this transformation, but you do have to open your heart. And that is why I am here today. Because I want to share my story, but more importantly, I want to challenge you, every one of you, to try to prove anything I've said wrong. Because I know that you can't. And I also know that in the process of trying, your lives will be transformed in ways that you cannot even begin to imagine. So thank you and God bless you. Again, for tuning in to the West Allen Show, and that was Mary Neal and her experience with her near-death experience, and uh, it was just absolutely uh, a remarkable story, just like we've always heard. And we're going to get into some uh, uh, here in the future on the show, where these little children have have died in the past believe it or not and tell their parents that uh, they ain't their real parents and and but they actually show uh, tell them how they died and who their mom was and where they lived and where their addresses were and they actually went back to their homes and found these people and uh, there are tens of thousands of these children's stories out there that uh, that are real compelling and we're gonna go to the Derek Prince hour and he's gonna show us how to get rid of demons and what they're all about and you can probably still hear the rain here today at the studio it's just raining really hard out there very unusual weather as we've always been having here for the past couple of years but here it is again folks Derek Prince The word devil is the translation of a Greek word, diabolos, which is found in the English words diabolic, diabolical, in Spanish, diabolo, and so on, and means literally the slanderer or the accuser, and is a title of Satan himself. It's a title of one person, and it is not normally used in the plural. But what we are dealing with is not Satan directly. What we are dealing with is what are correctly called demons, 
or evil spirits. The word demon comes from a Greek word, daimonion, which has a very long history in the Greek language, and it means some kind of a spirit being whom the ancients regarded as half divine and half human and who was normally worshipped or propitiated in certain ways. In fact, the majority of pagan religions all through human history have centered around the recognition of demons and attempts to propitiate them or enlist their help or prevent their wrath. More or less, that's how you can sum it up. Now, the other phrase that's used interchangeably in the New Testament is the phrase evil spirit or unclean spirit. And when I say interchangeably, in the synoptic gospels where one writer will use the word demon, telling the same story about the same incident, another synoptic writer will use the word evil spirit or unclean spirit, so that these are interchangeable. And we are not talking about Satan himself, the prince of the kingdom of darkness, we are not even talking about angels. We are talking about spirit beings. As I understand it, they are not angels. Now, this is not essential for your deliverance to know this, but I observe certain distinctions. Angels have their habitat in the heavenlies. Evil spirits are earthbound. Angels apparently have wings and fly. Evil spirits apparently do not have wings and walk. Jesus said the unclean spirit walketh through dry places seeking rest. Angels have bodies of their own and would not feel at home nor have any reason to desire to be inside a human body. Demons or evil spirits are spirits without bodies that intensely crave to be inside bodies. Primarily they would choose to be inside a human body but rather than be without a body to inhabit, we find in the Gospels that they would prefer to go into the bodies of pigs. Uh, without a body, they cannot express their nature. If, for instance, a demon of blasphemy must have a tongue to blaspheme through. A demon of doubt must have a mind to doubt through. A demon of lust must have a body and physical members to lust through. A demon of alcohol must have the appropriate physical organs to crave and to consume alcohol through. They are tied up to the need of a body to express themselves. Now, where demons came from is a matter about which I have opinions after many years, but it isn't important. Jesus dealt with demons by the thousands, but he never stopped to explain in his public teaching where they came from. And the important thing for you is not to know where they come from, it's to know how to get rid of them. And that, the Bible tells you clearly. Now, in regard to these, there are certain phrases used in the New Testament, and I'll enumerate them briefly. The three main phrases used for a person who is in some way under the influence or power or control of a demon or an evil spirit, these are the following phrases. First of all, to have an unclean spirit or a demon. Secondly, to be in an unclean spirit or a demon, when I think modern English would speak about being under the influence of. Thirdly, there is a Greek verb, to be demonized. The Greek verb, if you are familiar with Greek, is daimonizomai, and it means I am demonized. It's directly formed from the noun for demon. Demon in Greek, daimonion, to be demonized, daimonizomai. See, it's just a verb formed out of a noun. Now, in the King James Version, 
The verb that I have spoken of, daimonizomai, is normally translated to be possessed with devils. Now this translation is a disaster. It has misled more people than it will ever be possible to calculate because there is nothing in the original Greek, and I challenge any Greek scholar to say to the contrary, there is nothing in the original Greek to justify the use of the word possess. And this is what has misled millions of people. You see, the word possess in the English language suggests total ownership. If I possess my Bible, then it is entirely mine. And every page in the Bible belongs to me. There's no shared ownership. No one has a claim over 15 pages in my Bible. I possess it. It is my Bible. Now, people say, can a Christian be demon-possessed? And the answer is, obviously, no. A Christian, essentially, is one who belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. If he belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ, the devil cannot own him. That is absolutely clear. But it doesn't mean that a Christian cannot have areas in his life which are still under the control of evil spirits. He may belong by the choice of his will and the surrender of his will in salvation or the new birth to the Lord Jesus Christ. But though he has given himself generally to the Lord Jesus, it may well be that there are areas within him where the Holy Spirit and the nature of Christ are not in effective control. And you say, Brother Prince, how do you know that? Well, I've been a Christian over 30 years, and I know it from my own personal experience. I was baptized in the Holy Spirit about 30 years ago, having found the Lord pre about two weeks previously in an army barrack room. I had a marvelous conversion, a total transformation. But many, many years later, there were still areas in my life where the Lord Jesus was not in effective control. How many of you would say that's pretty normal? Thank you. All right, I just want you to see I'm not talking to people from another world, and I'm not talking about abnormal people. Let me put it to you this way. Now, I'm not jesting and I'm not making a, a fun of you at all. I want you to be serious. I'm serious. Let me ask you each one this question. How many of you would say, by raising your hand, Brother Prince, I believe I have the Holy Spirit? Praise the Lord. All right. Now, I'm not making fun of you. If you put your hand up, I will not laugh at you. How many of you would say, by the same token, Brother Prince, I'm totally controlled by the Holy Spirit? Praise God. Thank you. Well, there was one person that raised his hand. I praise God for that. I don't question it. Every Christian should be in that condition. But we all know that most Christians aren't as yet. Lots of people think that the Holy Spirit will only start to work in you and bless you when you're perfect. But isn't that silly? Because when you're perfect, <laughs> you won't need it. The idea that you've got to be perfect before the Holy Spirit will move in and do things for you is like sending young people to a university and the professors come to them and say, now when you young people graduate, we'll start to teach you. <laughs> say, when do you need teaching? Before you graduate. Uh, when we get to heaven, we'll have graduated. Then I don't know that we'll need all that teaching. But we need the Holy Spirit to help us now in 
our weaknesses. You know what Romans 8, 26 says? The Spirit helpeth our infirmities. The places where we're weak, the places where we're having problems is just where we need the Holy Spirit. And likewise, evil spirits, though they cannot own a Christian, can move in or be in residence and occupy certain areas of their personality. To illustrate it from personal experience, I was a full gospel preacher for a good many years, but I had various internal problems. I'll mention only one. It's a common one. It was depression. I was subject to fits of depression. They would come down over me and sh overshadow me and press me in like a great dark, moist cloud settling down over me, shutting me in. And I would have a, a feeling of helplessness and hopelessness. It would be, others can, but you can't. And I would be aware that I would carry this pressure around with me where I went, and particularly in my own home. And it was very, very embarrassing to me to think that I was subjecting my wife and children to the pressure that I was under. Now, I tried every means I knew of to get rid of this depression. I fasted, I prayed, I, I, I can't think of anything that I didn't do. And the embarrassing thing was, the more I fasted, the worse it got. In fact, one of our daughters said to me one day, Daddy, I wish you'd stop fasting because you're worse when you fast. Well, that's embarrassing for a preacher. And, but it was quite true because what fasting did was bring the thing out into the open. It didn't get it out, but it forced it into the open. Another thing I noticed was, when I really wanted to serve Christ to the utmost, that was when the pressure was worst. But when I was content to kind of go along with the stream and not make too much efforts against the kingdom of Satan, the pressure let up. And I could not find the solution to this until one day, Reading in Isaiah chapter 61, verse 3, I read this phrase, the garment of praise in place of the spirit of heaviness. And when I read that phrase, the spirit of heaviness, I suddenly saw that's your problem. It's not a mental attitude. It's not a psychological attitude. It's a person, a spirit that knows you. And immediately I saw a whole host of truths. I saw that the same spirit had troubled my father most of the time that I knew him, that it was a kind of family ghost that followed us down from generation to generation. I could trace its activity, and I realized that it understood me, it knew my thoughts, and it definitely planned its strategy against me, and that it was, had one supreme aim to prevent me serving Christ effectively. I will tell you this with regard to demons. Their headquarters are in Satan's kingdom and they have two main orders in relation to you. Number one, to keep you from Christ. If they fail in that, their second order is to stop you serving Christ effectively. If they can't stop you from being a Christian, then they'll stop you from being an effective Christian. Now you will find out that this makes an, a sense and explains a whole lot of things in your experience. For instance, why can you stay awake till midnight watching the TV but fall asleep before 10 o'clock if you read your Bible? Because the demon of slumber, which is referred to both in Old Testament and in New, 
doesn't mind you watching the late night show with Johnny Carson, but does mind you getting to know the Word of God. See? Or you take the little, the case we had of the neighbors with a pestilential little girl of about three, and we used to watch. Friday night when they went out grocery shopping, she'd dress up and walk out all smiling and sweet. Sunday morning when they wanted to go to the full gospel Sunday school and church, she'd lie on the floor and kick her legs in the air and scream because the spirit in that little girl didn't mind the grocery store but hated the full gospel church, you see. And if you will work out a lot of things that happen in your life, I sometimes tell people in meetings like this, now if you find an absolutely abnormal resentment for Brother Prince rising in you right now, be on your guard. I mean, there are many good reasons why you could resent me, but I've, I've done nothing to you. And it suddenly rises up in you. Remember, it's the devil trying to stop you from coming to me for help. See? You, you, behind these things, if they are demonic, there's always an intelligence that plots and plans and works out how to frustrate you, defeat you, keep you miserable, make you sick, and if possible, kill you. That's their objective. Don't forget what Jesus said about the devil. The thief cometh not but for to steal, to kill, to destroy. That's why he's there. If you tolerate him, that's what he's doing. Don't forget. You tolerate Satan in any area of your life, whatever. He's there to steal, to take away the things that are rightfully yours, your peace of mind, your innocence, your health, your right relationships with your family and neighbors your prosperity, your success, all these good things that are yours in Christ, the devil will seek to steal from you. Secondly, he's there to kill you physically. And many Christians every year die murdered, murdered by cancer and tumors and all sorts of things. They don't live out their natural and normal appointed lifespan. They're murdered by the devil. And then the third thing he does to the unsaved, not to the believer, is to torment them eternally after death. That's his program. Jesus warned us. He said, be very clear why the devil comes, what his aims are. They're stated for you. Steal, kill, destroy. So if you make friends with him, you know the kind of person you've made friends with. Now, the next question is, what are the typical marks of demon activity in a person? We all know that we have a nature, at least I trust we all know, that is prone to sin. We're born rebels. I hope you know that. Ephesians 2, 2, we are all by nature the children of wrath because we are the children of disobedience. Adam never begat any children till he was a rebel. And every child that ever was begotten of, of Adam and Adam's descendants was a rebel by birth. This is not my purpose to teach this this afternoon it's another message. So we are born with a rebellious nature. You ladies never had to teach any of your children to be naughty, did you? No, all right. But you had a problem teaching them to be good in most cases. So we have a rebellious nature. We tend to desire to do the wrong thing. Now the remedy for the rebellious nature is not deliverance. The remedy for the rebellious nature is the cross. Our old man that old rebellious Adamic nature is crucified with Christ. So if you're just dealing with the Adamic nature, don't come to Brother Prince and ask him to cast the old Adam out because it isn't scriptural. Can't be done. The only remedy for the old Adam is the cross. They that are Christ's 
have crucified the flesh with its affections and lusts. Now this is the basic solution beyond all solutions, it's the cross. But in addition to the old Adamic nature, multitudes of people have the compounded problem of what I call the vultures that fasten on the carcass. The carcass, the old man, the vultures, the evil spirits that fasten their claws and their beaks into that rotting old carcass and feed upon it. And if that's your situation, in addition to the cross, you may need the ministry of deliverance. The remedy for evil spirits is not to crucify them. You cannot crucify an evil spirit. It is to cast them out. On the other hand, you cannot cast out the old man. You have to crucify him. See, the remedies correspond to the needs, and you cannot mix up the remedy for the opposite need. Multitudes of people have been struggling manfully to crucify demons just doesn't work. The Bible says reckon the old man dead. That's scriptural, but it doesn't say reckon demons dead because they aren't dead and they'll never die. Now, naturally the question arises, Brother Prince, if I have this recurrent, persistent, disturbing, frustrating problem, how do I know whether it's just the old man or whether it's an evil spirit exploiting the old man? Well, on the blackboard, I have written up there in the middle activities of demons. And I have learned by experience that these are the main ways in which demons operate and manifest their presence. The things they habitually do. We'll glance at them. Number one, they entice. This is temptation. The Bible says every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. There's something within each one of us called lust, perverted desire, but there's an agent that plays upon the lust. It's like the mouse, there's something in the mouse that likes cheese. But to get the mouse into the trap, there's got to be someone that places the cheese just where it will cause the mouse to be caught. Now the enticer, the agent, is the demon. And he plays upon lust perverted desires within you and me. One of the basic activities of demons is enticement. Personally, I don't believe that Satan comes down from the heavenlies every time you and I need to be tempted. I believe he's got a very well-trained, multitudinous army doing the job for him against us all the time. He says, there's a young man just going into the ministry and he could be a danger, demons get on his tail and get him interested in some smart divorcee who's got about three children and a rotten past and get him sidetracked because otherwise he's going to do us damage. See, that's the piece of cheese that's baiting the mousetrap. And those evil spirits are playing upon something called sexual lust inside a young man. Just an example. The next activity is to enslave. Let's look at this particularly in reference to sex. Now, first of all, in regard to sex, I want to say sex is not evil. Contrary to the opinion of most Christians, it's good. 
because God created man sexual, and after he'd created everything, he saw that everything he had created was very good, including sex. The church has got a totally wrong, negative attitude towards sex. However, sex is also very powerful in most persons, and therefore the devil is smart enough to know that if he can get control in the sex area, he's got a very important measure of control in that person. Now, the next thing I want to say about sex is, it is no sin to be tempted. Jesus was tempted in all points, like as we are, yet without sin. So you can be tempted without sinning. Further, if you are tempted and sin sexually with a, with a wrong act, that does not necessarily mean you need deliverance from a sex demon. You All you need to do is repent, confess to Jesus, receive forgiveness and cleansing, and there you are back again. You're all right. But if this thing becomes enslaving, if no matter how many times you repent and confess and get forgiven and cleansed, you're back again doing it, then it's a demon. Now, I believe every form of sex perversion is demonic in its origin. The third thing demons do is torment. They are the tormentors. In Matthew 18, there's a parable told about a servant who was forgiven $6 million and refused to forgive a fellow servant $10. I'm putting it in modern value. And when the master heard about this unforgiving servant, he said, Thou wicked servant. He was very wrong. And he commanded him to be delivered to the tormentors till he should pay the uttermost farthing. The last verse of that parable says, So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if ye do not from your hearts forgive every man his brother, their brother his trespass. What so likewise? To deliver you to the tormentors. Who are the tormentors? The demons. God awakened me to this fact because I've had multitudes of Christians, uncounted multitudes, coming to me in torment. And I said to myself, God, how could that be? They're your children. How did they get in the hands of the tormentors? God said, I put them there because they refused to forgive another believer. So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you. There are various areas of torment. There's spiritual torment. The demon of fear is probably the chief tormentor. The Apostle John says, Fear hath torment. Now, there's a natural fear, which is perfectly normal. There's the fear of the Lord, which is reverence and respect and awe for God, which is clean and endureth forever. But there's another kind of fear, which is demonic. It's abnormal, it's unnatural, it's excessive, and it's tormenting. There's a tormentor. And there's another tormentor, and it's condemnation. Condemned all the time. The Bible says there is no condemnation for them who are in Christ Jesus. Another tormentor is doubt. And then there's physical torment. Cancer, arthritis, so on. Number four, the fourth main activity is to drive or compel. The Gadarene demoniac was driven out of habitation of men into the area of the tombs. 
And anything that is compulsive suggests the activity of a demon. Compulsive eating, compulsive talking, compulsive sleeping. There are many areas. Now, all these things are normal. It's normal to talk, normal to eat, normal to sleep. But when it becomes driving, compulsive, nagging, you can suspect a demon. Number five, defiling. Demons are unclean. All evil spirits are unclean. And many people have their mind and their conscience defiled by demons. Their minds are filled with thoughts and suggestions that they resent and hate, but they come crowding in almost endlessly. They're defiled in their minds by evil suggestions. And then number six, harass. They just get at you. They disturb you. They trouble you. Just the moment you're going to do something for God, they begin to get on you. My family learned years ago, when I was about to preach, stop talking to him. Because he's got everything he needs to keep calm before that message. Now, as a matter of fact, since I've had deliverance from three particular spirits which came different phases, depression, anger, and embarrassment, I can be perfectly relaxed before I preach. But that's an achievement. And it didn't come in one day. And it isn't true of all preachers, believe me. The normal preacher is a bundle of nerves before he gets into the pulpit. He's harassed. Now, we want to deal with what I call the city within. I have said that though a Christian belongs to the Lord, there may be areas within him where the Lord is not in control. And the Bible compares the inner nature of man to a city. Proverbs 16, 32 he that is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he that ruleth his spirit better than he that taketh a city. So ruling your own spirit is better than taking a city in war. And the other one, Proverbs 25, 28, he that hath no rule over his own spirit is like a city that is broken down and without walls. No defense. He can't keep anything out. Any demon that the devil sends against him can come in and settle in that city because it has no protection. Now, many drug addicts are like that. Persistent dope addiction makes a person inwardly like a city broken down and without walls. Everything will come in, one after another. And you'll find most persistent drug addicts not merely need deliverance from the drug, say, heroin. They need deliverance from deception, hatred, resentment, rebellion, sex perversion, and all sorts of other things because they've lost the ability to keep anything out of that inner city within them. Now, there are other people besides drug addicts that have become like a city that is broken down and without walls. But my purpose in speaking is to bring out this illustration of the city that's within each one of us. And the city I always used to illustrate this is one which I lived, Chicago. Now, the mayor of Chicago is Richard J. Daly. And many people feel he's doing a good job as mayor. But though Richard J. J. Daly is duly elected mayor, everybody who knows Chicago knows there are quite a lot of areas in Chicago where Richard J. Daly is not in control. There are some areas in Chicago where even the police have to go two at a time in daylight. 
There are other areas of Chicago, and they include certain areas of the political life of the city which are run by the mafia, although daily is the duly elected mayor. Now, this is like a Christian. You've elected Jesus Christ. He's mayor. He's in the mayor's chamber, but you've still got the mafia running around somewhere inside, see. And as a matter of fact, the mafia actually is a very vivid picture of demon activity because demons regularly operate in gangs. They do not operate singly. So much so that I've learnt if I meet one member of a gang to look for the others almost instantly. For instance, let's take a few. You have the case of, uh, well, let's say, depression, fear, loneliness, self-pity, despair. You know the next one? Suicide, that's right. And when you find that group, you just, it's only a question of time if suicide hasn't come in. It may be that he hasn't had time. Each one opens the way for the next. Or you can take anger, violence, and the next one, murder. Now, bear this in mind. Demons do not come in necessarily because you've committed the thing. They come in to make you commit the thing. For instance, the demon of suicide obviously doesn't come in because you've committed suicide but it comes in to make you commit suicide. The demon of murder does not come in to, to, because you've committed murder. It comes in to make you commit murder. Lots of people have said to me in horror when I've called the demon of murder out of them, Brother Prince, I've never committed murder. I say, no. But that demon came in with the intention of making you commit murder somewhere further along the line. And as long as you had him in, you were always in a dangerous position. Because in a sudden moment of anger, who knows what you would have done? How many people you read about in the newspaper commit murder and when they're charged with it, they say, I don't know what made me do it. No, they don't. But the devil does. He had that demon waiting there maybe 15 years till he got to that man to a place where he was drunk and somebody insulted him or ran off with his wife and then the demon of murder went into top gear and said, no, it's my opportunity. Other people have the demon of adultery who have not committed adultery, but it's there pushing them into it. Let's take briefly the main areas in the city. Now I could illustrate this from Chicago. You have the loop with the businesses. A little further west you have the banks. You go a little south from the center of Chicago. You have the depots, the warehouses. Go further south you have a residential area which is basically Negro. Go back to the loop and go west and you have an area which is primarily Polish. Go back to the loop and go north and you have an area which is primarily Jewish and then another area which is primarily Swedish and then you get out to the suburbs with their different characteristic levels of social success and prestige and so on. So every area of the city has its own distinctive characteristic occupations and inhabitants. Now this is like the city within you. It's divided up into areas, each with its own characteristic inhabitants. And I'm going briefly through this list. And I'm not going to dwell on any. I would say the first main area is emotions, attitudes, and relationships. And for every negative attitude, emotion, and relationship, there exists the corresponding demon. Resentment, hatred, rebellion, fear, depression, loneliness, self-pity, envy, jealousy, pride, 
and a whole host of others. There's a demon for each one. Now, the fact that you feel envy every now and then doesn't mean you have the demon of envy, as I've said. But when it becomes compulsive, when it is persistent, when it is beginning to occupy a sort of major part of your life, then it's a demon. The commonest, I would say, is fear. I say about one in five persons need deliverance from the spirit of fear alone. As I said already, they go in gangs. Find one and you can pick out the other. They go in succession. For instance, the problem of multitudes of young people in America today is this. Resentment, always against their parents. Hatred, rebellion. And when rebellion enters, first of all it's directed towards the parents, then the church, then the school, then the government, then, then God. It's more or less that way. This is, explains what's happened to multitudes of young people. Now, I would like to say that in most cases it's the fault of the parents. But it's the problem of the children. And I would like to say to anybody who has problems as a result of their parents' wrong treatment, remember, it isn't your parent that suffers so much as you. I was talking to a girl a couple of days ago whose father had molested her sexually and so on. And I was trying to urge her to forgive her father, and she was finding it a hard job. And I said, well, remember, he's ruined the first years of your life. If you go on hating him, he's going to ruin the rest of your life. Do you want him to do that? I remember talking to a woman once who said to me, well, her husband had run off after 15 years of marriage with another woman and left her with the kids. And I said, are you going to forgive your husband? She said, why? He's ruined 15 years of my life. I said, do you want him to ruin the rest? Because as long as you go on hating and resenting him, he's ruining your life. He's not suffering one quarter as much as you are. Remember, in resentment, it's not the one who's resented that suffers. It's the one who resents. You know, when a man has ulcers, you know the question that they ask. It's not what the man's eating. It's what's eating the man. And resentment just eats people up from inside. Now, don't get eaten away inside. Then there's the realm of the mind, the thoughts. There are certain specific characteristic demons. Doubt, unbelief, indecision, procrastination, putting things off, compromise. These are mental. Very, very real, very powerful. Many people have had unbelief injected into them by the seminary, by the church. They've been just fed on unbelief. Compromise is a remarkably powerful demon. A Lutheran minister came to me once. He had the baptism in the Holy Spirit, but he said, I need deliverance. And he had a problem with homosexuality. Another minister and I prayed with him. He was delivered, but he said, I'm not fully free. And I commanded the next spirit to name itself, and it said compromise. And I was astonished. I said, have you had a problem with compromise? He said, all my life, since I was a boy, I've never been able to make a clear-cut commitment on anything. And when we commanded that spirit to come out of him, it was so powerful, it threw that man around like a rubber ball. And I realized what a hold. There's a lady here, and I'm not going to in any way to indicate who she is. She wouldn't mind if I did, actually. She remembers she had the demon of forgetfulness. 
And when I was casting that out, it spoke out of her and said, I'm not coming out, I'm locked in her brain. These are the mental demons, and there are others, but I'm just giving you a sample. Then there's the demons that specifically relate to the tongue. Blasphemy. Any blasphemer has a demon. That's one sufficient evidence. Lying. Unclean talk. And you know another one? Gossip. Ah, the gossip demon has ruined more churches maybe than the sex demons put together. If you are like a carrion bird feeding on the bad traits in other people, you have a gossip demon. Some so-called prayer meetings are just outings for gossip demons. And I'm sure they lick their lips with expectation when the prayer day rolls round every week. <laughs> oh, sister, did you hear about Mrs. So-and-so? She really needs prayer. Yak, yak, yak. How much prayer does she get? And how much good does it do her? Then there's the area of sex. As I've already said, sex is good, not evil, but it's powerful. And if the devil can move in and grab that area, then he's got a major measure of control over your personality, something that will drive you, force you, enslave you. Now, my personal conviction is every form of sex perversion is demonic. That, again, is sufficient evidence. Any form of homosexuality, and there are many different forms, in my opinion, is the manifestation of a demon. And I have seen homosexuals of all shades delivered when it has been dealt with as a demon. There was a man in Chicago, and again, I could mention his name, he wouldn't mind. He'd been a homosexual for many years. And when I preached on this, ultimately he received deliverance. But he said to our daughter later, he said, I never got deliverance until I was willing to face the fact that it was a demon and I had to deal with it that way. Another demon in the sex area, which is tremendously common, and I know this doesn't sound good for a preacher, but I'm going to tell you nevertheless, is masturbation. Now, I know that doctors and psychologists say it's harmless and it's a safe outlet and so on. Well, it's demonic. Now, again, a person may have a fall, a slip, repent, confess, be forgiven and cleansed, that's it. But when it becomes enslaving, it's demonic. I've dealt with many married persons, both men and women, that were still enslaved by the demon of masturbation years after marriage. I was dealing with one last week. Married man with a child. Said, have you ever had a problem with masturbation? He said, yes, and I still have. Frequently, when you're dealing with people who need deliverance, you'll find, if you watch them, that their fingers become stiff and distorted. And often they'll complain of a tingling in their fingers. And in, never have I found this to be anything but masturbation. I've dealt with hundreds of cases. As soon as I see those symptoms, I know that's what I'm dealing with. And in many cases, that evil power has to be driven out specifically out of the fingers. I remember another instance of, of power in fingers. I had a deliverance service some years back and a collective deliverance prayer. And uh, I didn't know the results. In many cases, the people came forward, I prayed, and then the service closed. 
But a woman, a few days later, said, you know, I'm a mother with two or three children, and I love my children, but she said I have the most intensive compulsion to spank them for unreasonable things. And she said, when I came forward in the deliverance service, I felt that evil power leaving my hands. And she said, no, I have no urge to spank my children. See, the Bible says we're to yield our members as instruments of righteousness unto God. But sometimes the devil has got there first, and he's using our members as instruments of sin, and then we have to drive out his power. Then we have the area of addictions. Addictions are appetites which have gone out of all proportion and become enslaving. All appetites basically are healthy. It's healthy to eat, it's healthy to drink, and so on. But when an appetite becomes abnormal, perverted, and enslaving, then it's an addiction, and all addictions are demonic. I discovered this by experience, and I believe firmly it's true. I dealt some years back with a young man who was the son of a doctor, medical doctor, well-educated young man. His addiction was to cough mixture. And he used to drink five bottles of cough mixture every day. I understand that the ingredient that was addictive was benzoterpene hydrate. I don't know what it is. When I was in a morning worship service preaching on the power of the blood of Jesus, that young man was driven by that demon out of the service to the drugstore to buy a bottle of cough mixture. So intensive was the compulsion to drink cough mixture. And when I prayed with him that evening, this demon spoke out of his throat with a deep bass voice and said, I'm addiction. You can't have him. I have his soul. And I will not let go. And it was a real battle to get that demon out. Another case of addiction that was remarkable, I dealt with a young woman of about 18, Pentecostal girl, saved and baptized in the Holy Spirit, who had an addiction to nail varnish. She loved the smell of nail varnish. And she said to me, when I go into the cosmetics department of a major store, I cannot act like a normal person. I have this compulsion to go and buy nail varnish. I either have to buy nail varnish or get out of that department. And when this spirit came out of her, it tore her and it came out screaming. It was not just a figment of the imagination. The commonest addiction in the United States, some of you have heard me say this many times, food addiction gluttony. That's just as much an addiction as alcohol. There was a Presbyterian minister in the camp last August, some of you will remember him. He had a tremendous battle for deliverance. I was really longing to get over to him and I couldn't, but there were some sisters ministering to him. When he was delivered, I said, what was that man delivered of? And one of these sisters said, gluttony. And she said, he told her this. He was in his late 50s or early 60s and he said this has absolutely warped my life it's even poisoned my relationship with my wife he said it's caused me to be deceptive I'll go downtown in the middle of the day buy two dollars worth of candy eat it all in the car on the way home and then lie to my wife about where I've been <laughs> see it's just like an alcoholic but it's the other thing I'll tell you now I'll tell you what happens addictions are not the trunk they're branches. An addiction is a branch that grows on a trunk, and the trunk is a frustration. So in dealing with addiction, if you don't deal with a basic frustration, you've not done a complete job. 
Let's say a lady is frustrated. Her husband is running around with another woman and spending a lot more money than he earns. All right, if that lady is an Episcopalian, she'll go to the martini and she'll become an alcoholic. But if she's Assemblies of God or Church of God, she'll go to the cookie jar and the pastry tray. But she'll become a foodaholic, that's all. But there isn't any basic difference, just the same. And there are more foodaholics than there are alcoholics in the church. I'm not talking about the world at large. See, it isn't respectable to be an alcoholic, but it's perfectly respectable in most religious circles to be a foodaholic. Then there are the other addictions. Nicotine, very common. And it cannot be the will of God for a person to smoke and destroy the temple of the Holy Spirit, which is the human body. Have you seen people die of lung cancer? I have. It could not be God's will that you greatly increase the probability of your dying that terrible death. Be realistic. You can pass it off as a social expression or something harmless, but it's destroying you. Furthermore, it's enslaving. And you go to a prayer meeting and you're a smoker, you walk outside, the first thing you want to do is light up. You just can't hold out any longer. Maybe if the prayer meeting is too long, you go out before it ends. You're a slave. And that's a demon. A Church of England rector in Britain told me that in his congregation there was a move of the Holy Spirit and uh, a number of people who were never converted but were members of the church got saved and baptized in the Holy Spirit. And there was one man who had this problem with nicotine. He just could not stop smoking. Now, some people smoke and they don't mind, but he smoked and hated it and hated himself for doing it. But he could not stop. And this rector was a real good Ang Anglican evangelical. He knew all about the sixth chapter of Romans, reckoning yourself to be dead indeed unto sin. Every time this man came to him, he said, just reckon yourself to be dead. And the man said, I've reckoned, but I, it doesn't work. So they had a prayer meeting one day, and this rector told me this himself. He said, in the prayer meeting, he was suddenly moved by the Spirit of God. He walked up to that man, placed his hand on his chest, and said, you demon of nicotine, come out of this man. The man gave a kind of cough and a gasp. Something came out, and he couldn't bear to be in the same room with people smoking after that. That's the example of a person whose heart is right, but they're enslaved. He didn't want it. Now, wicked people want to do wicked things. But good people hate wicked things, and if they do them, it's because they're enslaved. The whole area of religious deception. You know the greatest enemy of America today? I say this soberly, it's witchcraft. And there's a professional witch that's right enthroned at the door of the White House. And I don't want to name her, but I've just been in that area, and I've had first-hand information of the nature of her activities and the persons whom she has influenced. I would say one thing. It's a good thing that Nixon won the last election, not for political reasons, but because his rival regularly consults that prophetess. Now, I have this on the best, most up-to-date, first-hand information. Her best friend has just been converted and is going to write a book exposing her, incidentally. Pray for that book, because the devil's going to fight it tooth and nail. Another interesting piece of information about books is that Don Basham, who's a personal friend of mine, has got a book in the final stages, which is going to be published by John Sherrill, 
on how he came into this deliverance ministry and the stories and experiences. And it will be a bestseller without any doubt. And it will be a real counterblast to these other books that you can see on every bookstand, every drugstore, every air terminal. Okay, we've come to the point of how to be delivered. Let me just mention certain things which I believe are demonic. Allergies, almost all sinus problems, tumors, ulcers, arthritis, heart attacks. Now, these are my opinions. I'm not a medical doctor. I'm not practicing medicine. But there is a medical doctor from Columbus, Georgia. Some of you probably know him. Who was in the CFO retreat last spring. Heard me preach this. And he said, well, I'll see if it's true. He had a persistent allergy that he could not eat wheat or anything with wheat in it. So he came forward in my deliverance service prayed the deliverance prayer and said, now if I'm delivered, I can eat wheat. Went away and has been eating wheat ever since. <laughs> and he was a Baptist. So if you can convince a Baptist physician that demons are due to allergies, I think you've won the battle. All right. Now, how to get delivered? Simple. I'm, I've outlined the conditions. Let me tell you, first of all, the Bible says, whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be delivered. That's just as inclusive a promise as whosoever believeth in him shall not perish. One's John 3:16, the other's Joel 2:32. So all you have to know is the conditions, meet them and receive deliverance. Number 1, humility. And I don't mean that you've got to be a saint in humility. I mean you've got to humble yourself. It's not persistent humility for years. It's humbling yourself. And that's an act of your will. It's a decision which you can make in the next five minutes to humble yourself. You see, I tell people this. There may come a moment when you'll have to choose between your dignity and your deliverance. And then, if you humble yourself, you'll let dignity go and get deliverance. And dignity will come back again later. But if you're proud, you refuse to lose your dignity and you lose your deliverance. People come to me sometimes and say, Brother Prince, couldn't you pray with me in private? I say, certainly I could, but what's the motive? Is it pride? Because if it's pride, you're not on the right basis to meet God in the first place. God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace to the humble. God knoweth the proud afar off, and that's where he keeps them too. Number two, truth. Jesus said, ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Now, one thing is knowing the truth of God's word. But the other, which is <laughs> more down to earth, is knowing the truth about yourself. Now, today, I've tried to show you the truth about yourself. I have discovered people that are downright honest always get delivered but people that you have to keep on drawing it out of them, and you never know when you've got the last item, it's very hard to get them delivered. So I say this, truth in your case means calling a spade a spade and not an agricultural implement. Or, I put it this way, call your problem by the same name you'd call it in your husband, and you've got the right name. 
Thirdly, you have to confess your sin. It's old-fashioned, but God still requires it. You don't have to confess to man here today, but you have to confess to Almighty God. Now, when it comes to confessing your sin, let me tell you something which is obvious, but few people realize it. You're never going to tell anything to God about yourself that he doesn't already know. See, you're never going to shock God. Oh, isn't that good news? God is unshockable. And when you've told him the worst, he says, well, I knew it all along. It wasn't for my sake you were telling me, it was for your sake. Because you've got to get it off your chest. You've got to come out in the open with it. This is the condemnation. Light is coming to the world. And men love darkness rather than light. They would not come to the light. Confession is coming to the light. It's exposing that area of your life that you just wish wasn't there. But you have to expose it to the light of God, not to the light of man, but of God. Number four, repent. That means to renounce, to turn away from, to count as your enemy. David said, O God, do not I hate them that hate thee? And am not I grieved with those that rise up against thee? I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them mine enemies. And then he said, Search me, O God, and try my heart. He was talking about the things inside him that were God's enemies. And he said, Lord, if they're your enemies, they're my enemies. I'll not be friends with the enemies of God. I'll make God's enemies my enemies, even if they're in me. You see, God will not deliver you from your friends. If you enjoy lust and gossip, these things, God's not going to take them out. But if you hate them, he'll deliver you. Now, hating everything evil, renouncing it, refusing to have anything to do with it, this is repentance. In this category, I want to say, though I'll deal with it tomorrow more fully, you have to renounce occult involvement. Every type of involvement with the occult, the Ouija board, horoscopes, fortune-telling, Gene Dixon, Edgar Cayce, handwriting analysis, automatic writing, all this whole ESP, hypnosis, the whole works. You have to renounce it because those are the agents of Satan. And you cannot be friends with Satan's agents and friends with God at the same time. You have to hate the enemies of God. Now, I'm going to preach on this tomorrow, but I want to say it because in many cases it will hinder your deliverance. If you are still in any way under the shadow of the visit to a fortune teller, playing with a Ouija board, dealing with tarot cards, all these things, the devil still has a legal claim over you. And when you come for deliverance, you say, no, wait a minute now, I've got a right to that area. Don't you think you can get me out? Because you can't. He's a legal expert. Number five needs a sermon on its own. Forgive others. Do you remember why? The unforgiving servant was in the hands of the tormentors because he refused to forgive his fellow servant. And if you refuse to forgive any person, living or dead, you are not a candidate for full deliverance. Forgiveness is not an emotion, it's a decision. Simple language, it's tearing up the IOU. All right, your parents owe you $10,000 for all the love, care, affection, consideration, teaching they never gave you. You've got it there in your hand. You can pray for them, you can wish for them, you can pray for deliverance, but the only thing that matters is tearing up the IOU. Your husband owes you $15,000 for running around with three other women. Well, you can hold on to that IOU as long as you like. 
but you'll not be delivered till you tear it up. The last thing, call on the name of the Lord. It shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be now. This is the end of the teaching session. All I'm going to do now is minister. Lord, we thank you for your presence with us. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit. We know that you love us. You care for us. You're concerned. You want the best. You sent your word to heal and to deliver your people. Now, Lord, let every person here be guided by your Holy Spirit in making the right decision, whether to go or whether to stay. And I pray that all that do not need deliverance or are not ready to receive deliverance will go. And I pray that your blessing shall go with them. And I pray that those that have come to the realization that they need deliverance and are willing to meet the conditions will stay, Lord, and that your blessing will remain also with those that stay. Bless the next meeting, the speaker, and everything that we're going to do throughout the remainder of this camp. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, Brother Prince is not the deliverer, nor any other human being here. Now Jesus said, Him that cometh unto me, I will in no wise cast out. So if you come, he will not turn you away. All right? Secondly, even when he was on earth, Jesus said, If I by the Spirit of God cast out demons, then is the kingdom of God come unto you. So even while he was personally present on earth, the power by which he drove out evil spirits was the power of the Holy Spirit. How much more when he's now in heaven? Therefore, the agent who actually administers deliverance to you is the Holy Spirit. And in order to receive deliverance, you have to cooperate with the Holy Spirit. If you resist the Holy Spirit, you resist your deliverance. Now, in cooperating with the Holy Spirit, there is one simple, basic, physical fact that I will tell you. Philip's translation of Mark 16, 17 says this. These signs shall follow them that believe. In my name they shall expel demons. That's why I call my book Expelling Demons. Now, the key word is expel because it takes it out of King James English into modern English and modern thinking. And everybody really knows what the word expel means. If you have inhaled tobacco smoke and it's in your lungs and you don't want it, what do you do? You expel it or exhale it. What is that? It's a decision of your will and an action of your muscles. Now, expelling evil spirits is the same. If you're a believer, then you have the authority in the name of Jesus to expel them. From whom? Well, who better than yourself? Begin with yourself. What is to expel? It's a decision followed by an action. Now, in both Hebrew and Greek, the word for spirit is also the word for breath or wind. And an evil spirit is an evil breath, just as the Holy Spirit is the breath of the Almighty. And in the baptism, what I tell people to do is to drink in the Spirit of God. Jesus said, if any man thirsts, let him come unto me and drink. And I found the people that drink always receive. 
I've never seen a person come to Jesus, meet the conditions, and start to drink in without receiving the baptism. Never. Well, now, expelling is the exact opposite of drinking in. It's exhaling. So when you have come to Jesus, otherwise it doesn't work. When you've met the conditions, when you've prayed the prayer, don't go on praying. Again, it's the same with the baptism. Many people pray themselves out of the baptism. They come to Jesus and go on telling him they want the baptism instead of drinking. You've seen that happen, haven't you? You don't get the baptism by praying. You get the baptism by drinking. You don't expel demons by praying. You expel demons by expelling them. So when you come to this moment where you've been through this prayer and said everything that I lead you to say, you'll have met the legal conditions if you prayed the prayer in sincerity. Now you're a legal candidate for deliverance. You've come to Jesus. You can rely on the Holy Spirit to begin to minister deliverance to you. What do you do? Cooperate with the Holy Spirit. How? Begin to breathe out. Begin to expel. And it may happen the first breath will be pure human breath. The second likewise. The third also. But somewhere down the line, something other than human breath is going to start coming out. And that's your enemy. Now, when evil spirits come out, they come out with a variety of different manifestations. It says in Acts 8-7, when Philip preached in Samaria, unclean spirits crying with loud voice came out of many that were possessed with them. There are many different operations as an evil spirit comes out. Sometimes... It's scarcely perceptible, just a little sign. Sometimes it's a yawn. I know a lady that was delivered of the demon of nicotine. She yawned so wide she thought she was going to dislocate her jaws. But when they came together again, she was free of nicotine. Often, it's a sob. Habitually, the spirit of fear will come out with a sobbing sound. Often, it's a cough. Sometimes, it's a scream or a groan, or a roar. The demon of anger or murder often come out with a roar. Now, I am not encouraging you to scream or sob or roar. But what I'm trying to do is prevent you from being inhibited if it happens that way. Because when that scream rises to your lips, if you suppress it, you've suppressed the demon. Now, you know what happens when the ambulance goes down the road and its light is flashing and its siren is going. All other traffic draws off to one side or the other. Isn't that right? Well, that's like the demon. When the ambulance starts coming out, get everything else out of the way. Stop praying. Don't speak in tongues. Don't use the name of Jesus. Let it go. I say to people, if I'm ministering to them individually and I listen, let me do the praying, you do the letting go. Because your praying isn't going to do it. In fact, your praying is going to hinder the demon. The demon cannot cross the name of Jesus when it's on your lips. If you speak in tongues, you're holding the demon inside because the tongues are more powerful than he is. So, when you come to this moment, whoosh, let them go. If you're really prepared, if you've gone along step by step, you can get rid of a dozen in no time. All right. Now, we are going to say this prayer to Jesus, and this is your confession of faith, and you're meeting the legal requirements for deliverance.
When you finish the prayer, you say in Jesus' name, Amen. Then I'm going to do the praying. I'll command the demons to come out. Are you let them go. Thanks for listening to the West Allen Show. I hope that you like Derek Prince. And until next time, thank you for joining us. I'm your host, West Allen. Signing out.